Well, this year marked a first at Cannes. Both the winning films came from the same country, South Korea, Decision to Leave and Broker. But South Korea has been making its presence felt across the board recently. The Oscar-winning Parasite, TV sensations like Snowpiercer and Squid Game, hugely popular rom-coms and action flicks on Netflix, not to mention the K-pop phenomenon. Right now the biggest bands in the world are Korean boy bands like BTS and girl groups like Blackpink. Something is happening and Simon Morris wants to find out what it is. The first time Korean films cross my path, they seem to belong firmly in the genre area. Monster movies, brutal crime stories, martial arts. But suddenly, they're bigger than that. Far bigger. In fact, the closest comparison I can make is to the golden age of Hollywood in the 30s and 40s. So, what's Korea's secret? I'm joined by Michael Stevens, long-time chair of the Korean Cinerama Trust, and also by crack screenwriter Nick Ward, who's a regular in the Seoul Screenplay Development Support Programme. Michael, I'll start with you, if I may. When did South Korea become more than a local success? It's probably uh, well into the 2000s, Simon. Korea underwent a financial crisis in about 1997, and there was a lot of liberalisation after that by the Korean government, including support for venture capital funds uh, investing in film. In Korea, they call that in music uh, cultural content sector. It's known as the K-wave or the Hallyu wave. Originally, probably uh, coming to our shores via K-pop, but um, as I say, with films to follow. I know that um, South Korea is a big country and there's a lot of money in there, but it doesn't seem to explain why it's so global. How big is the local market for Korean films? Pretty big, because uh, Korea, um, Korean language films do very, very well in Korea. It's interesting with the recent films we've been talking about, including Decision to Leave and Hunt, they uh, both gross somewhere in, in excess of um, 30 million US in their own domestic box office. So that's even before they start going overseas. But in fact, it's the overseas onslaught that seems to have hit everybody in the last five, ten years. What were the films that first made a big impact overseas? Well, that's a very good question, Simon. You talked about Korean films sort of being genre and, for want of a better word, art house. But people started taking notice, I think, around the time of uh, director Park Chang-wook's Old Boy, which, funnily enough, had a scene shot in New Zealand. All I remember about Old Boy, which was a gripping piece, but it was unbelievably violent, and it was essentially a a huge, glammed-up B-movie, the way that Quentin Tarantino used to make them. But that seemed to really get past that art house niche thing and suddenly make it across the board in some respects. Yes, it's, it's interesting because director Park's films can be quite unique. The other director who seems to have done very well in international markets is director Bong Joon-ho, who um, we would know him probably most recently 
with the success of Parasite. Which won the Oscar. Indeed, it did. Or a number of Oscars. Uh, but he's also produced another other uh, stunning films, um, including collaborations with people like Tilda Swinton in terms of Snowpiercer. Another wonderful, one of my favourite films is called Okja, which was um, intended to be sold overseas. Nick, I'll bring you in here. When did you first start working with Career and how did it happen? New Zealand had like a co-production deal with, uh, well, a development deal really with, with Korea. And the producers had come up with the idea of doing two horror films, one which was set in Korea with New Zealanders in it, and the other that was set in New Zealand with Koreans in it. So two alternate stories, and they took two writers over. I was tasked with writing um, a horror film that was set here in New Zealand with Korean characters and uh, Korean monster-slash-ghost at the front of it. It was a very long process. It was a lot of fun. Nothing came of it in the end. But I did cry myself to sleep on the pile of money that I made out of it. (laughs) (laughs) When you were working with them, were they giving you different sorts of instructions to what you're used to from New Zealand producers? Well, I've got to say, they're very different. Um, They call a script a scenario, and I was also a bit lost on that. But they're very respectful of the work and seem to like what I'm doing. It was a really really enjoyable process. As far as what's happened with me, Korea has been doing this. um, the Seoul Film Commission. We have the New Zealand Film Commission. They have the Korean Film Commission, but then they also have the Seoul Film Commission, which is a film commission for the city of Seoul. They do this program where they send an invitation out to the world, actually, and they invite people to submit projects that have a co-production quality. So how competitive is that? I mean, there must be... I mean, There's a lot of, lot of people. A lot of people come in. And when I first did it, my script was one of six selected around the world, oh, wow. uh, which was great for me. And, and so they flew us over to Seoul. And by us, I mean, I'm the producer I was working with, Michelle Turner, and got a, a lot of support from the Seoul Film Commission, met a lot of Korean filmmakers when I was there. What were they like? I mean, do they have a formula for success, or do they just simply have an attitude? Well, the thing that I think as a creator that that really excites me about Korean film is that they are not constrained by genre. You know, you can be watching a thriller and suddenly it's got a like a balls-out comedy scene. You know, if you look at something like Parasite, which is, it, there's moments when it's almost comedy, almost farcical. There's moments where it's horror. There's moments where it's thriller. There's moments where it's romance. And, and it's a soap opera too. It is a soap <laughs> opera as well. And I think that's fantastic. Again, when you look at something like uh, going back to Old Boy, Old Boy is a movie that is almost Shakespearean in its gauge, but then also has this Tarantino quality to it. They are really brave about mixing their genres. We know we're watching the Marvel movie, there's going to be a big punch out at the end. Or we know when we see the romance movie that he's going to run to her at the airport and they're going to embrace. But in a Korean film you don't know what you're going to get. That's what I particularly love about these ones. Korean films go across the board. I mean, as Nick was saying, they do art house films for Cannes, they do multiplex thrillers, they do romances for Netflix. So many romances. Yeah. Not to mention things like The Squid Game, which is absolutely edge of your seat gripping horror in some (laughs) respects so how do they do it is it just simply the fact that they don't know the meaning of the word can't (laughs) Uh, that that may be it Um, the filmmakers that I've met in Korea they tend to take their own sort of approach Uh, as as Nick said they don't like to be pigeonholed some of my most favorite Korean films are actually mashups action comedy drama thrillers and that is quite delightful for us uh, in terms of entertaining 
content. You talk about Hollywood films, but frankly, you could say the same thing about films everywhere, including us, which is, it's an expensive hobby, making (laughs) movies, and everyone suddenly gets this moment of panic, and they think, I've got to be careful here. I've got to make sure that we don't... It doesn't seem to be the thing that's driving career, and I'd like to know who's paying for their movies. Is it private money, or is it government money? I I can give you a little bit of an answer to that, uh, Simon. Last year, uh, CJNM, one of the major uh, vertically integrated entertainment companies, announced that they were going to spend 4.4 billion US on new content. And uh, earlier this year, Netflix indicated that they were going to spend half a billion US dollars in expanding their Korean content. So there's money coming in from overseas, and there's a very strong push out from um, major companies like CJ to push their content out into the world. Uh, By vertically integrated, I mean in the US uh, they had antitrust laws, so film studios couldn't own cinemas. But in Korea, they don't have that constraint. So you'll have a number of major companies that will own the cinemas, that will um, do the promotion of the films, do the distribution, and do the production. It's almost like the old Hollywood studio system, I think you are saying before. before. There have been a few um, glitches along the way, Simon, uh, including, funnily enough, involving uh, New Zealand. There was one Korean film, I think, the production budget was about $40 million, and it grossed, I think, under $12 million US. I think the producers in Korea were trying to make a, a Hollywood film, and, and that didn't, clearly didn't work. I think there's a good point there, which is, in that case, they tried to emulate, let's make an American movie. And since they've given that away, and they're concentrating on making, you know, who cares? Let's just make the Squid Games. I mean, who would have yeah. thought that would travel? Mm-hmm. Who would have thought the Parasite would travel and would be so immensely popular? And I think there's a good lesson for us here in New Zealand to learn that, is be ourselves, you know. For a long time here, in the TV industry anyway, we've looked at the Denmark who make these Scandi-noir, or the Scandi countries. Mm. We'll make Scandi-noir. That's what we'll do. We know, we'll copy that. And it was like, well, that's, that's not, it's not us. I know we have mm. the cinema of unease here in New Zealand, but why don't we just concentrate on being us? As a result, we, that got lost. However, the groundswell of that is you've seen stuff like Tyker and Jermaine's work. They've been quietly exporting New Zealand humour to the world, which is very... Very successfully. Yeah, have, very yeah. successfully. It's really unique. And, and myself, I worked on Wellington Paranormal, which to date has sold to, um, a, you know, a, something like 105 countries around the world. I mean, in a way, I've found the same thing with Broken Wood. It sells around the world because of the tone. It's a well, uniquely New Zealand yeah, tone and, version of an English and I idea. Say, I was going to touch a little bit on the K-pop thing too. I mean, yeah. that looks industrial. That looks like there's a factory churning this stuff out in the same way that there is in Sweden and I, I guess other places as well. We know there's a formula for um, pop shows and pop stars and, 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 and musicians and stuff. That We know there's a formula there. But look at what, they, what they're doing. They are not singing in English. They're singing Korean songs in Korean. Who would have thought, you know, that something like Gangnam Style would have flooded the world? There's no, like, I think there's like a, a handful of English words in there, mm. you know, but the rest is Korean. And with these bands, is it BTS? You know, they, yes. yeah. they are unashamedly singing in Korean. Michael, do you have any idea about what they're doing that's so successful that other pl- people could emulate? What uh, we on the Korean Summer Armor Trust are trying to do is 
encourage uh, collaboration and cooperation on projects because the Korean filmmakers have a unique storytelling tradition. Nick's touched on um, the success of some of our storytellers like Taika Waititi. We don't have the scale of companies here and investment that the Koreans have. But I think there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration. And that's actually, funny enough, uh, t- has taken place. There's been a lot of support by uh, Sir Richard Taylor and his team for Korean films at Weta Workshop. And we have a number of Korean films that regularly look to New Zealand for support in post-production. We touch on you know New Zealand and, and South Korea, and I guess South Korea and America and stuff. But what about the rest of Asia? I mean, the fact is that South Korea, population-wise, is... Far smaller than Japan, China, India, and yet, to coin a phrase, they are boxing incredibly (laughs) above their weight. What is it that they're doing that's so special as far as getting across to overseas? Simon, I'm going to venture a personal view, um, and I'll be very interested in Nick's take on this, but having travelled in Asia extensively for the last 30 years, the Koreans, in terms of their content, not only uh, film, but definitely their television um, dramas uh, are very emotionally accessible. Someone once called the Koreans the Irish of Asia and I think that's emotional accessibility uh, that's been very appealing throughout uh, other parts of Asia. When I spoke to you uh, earlier Simon I talked about the success of a Korean actor in Japan who um, it, it was just phenomenal. Uh, I think of some other parts of Asia where people are more layered but Koreans are very open to showing their emotions and, and, and the full range of uh, human experience. I, I would jump right in there and say, I, I, I was about to say you know, that they have been described as the Irish of Asia, which almost sounds like a, I can see Simon smiling at that phrase, yeah. but it's true. Uh, they are, just from my times there, just such pleasurable people to be around. And one of the things, Simon, I mean, this is a personal opinion here, throughout Asia, a lot of Asian countries have beef with each other. No one seems to particularly have any beef with the, uh, with, with the South Koreans. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think it is because they're such affable people. They, they have had their fair share of wars and invasions and occupations and all that sort of thing. They, they don't seem to bear grudges or have grudges bore against them. I feel a real affinity when I'm there. You must feel that as well, Michael. That that they f- it feels like hanging out with a bunch of Kiwis, and yeah. it, it is no uh, it's no problem. That what I do like is they're very keen to do business over food and drinks. Absolutely, uh, and <laughs> there's a massive um, craft beer <laughs> culture and barbecue meat culture in uh, in Seoul anyway. And when I'm there, and uh, yeah, that, that, that's pretty accessible. Yeah. <laughs> it's very appealing for for New Zealanders. You're quite right, Nick. Mm. Uh, but the other thing that I would just like to say is that Korea, of course, has a, a, an incredible depth of history and uh, a strong tradition of storytelling. Mm. And um, we in New Zealand, we have uh, very strong traditions of storytelling, particularly from the Maori side. Uh, and I think to that, to be able to work together and share those things, it would be great to um, in, encourage more of. I would bring that back to the bravery in storytelling, you know? Yeah. Uh, and and um, I think it's something we, we tend to be quite conservative here in New Zealand. And when I've been there, you know, working with Korean, they, they're all surprised. Why do you want to come here? Why do you want to write Korean stories? Because many of my stories have, you know, Korean content and Korean characters. Why do you want to do that? And I say the same thing because I love the way you tell stories. This bravery in their storytelling mm. and this not adhesion to genre, I, I can see getting 
script notes back on some of these scripts where um, you would say stop that immediately. Don't, because those are the bits of it that make it so magnificent. 